Hello, everyone. Welcome to Semper Connected, a podcast dedicated to sharing Marine Corps recruiting-related information, knowledge, and understanding. I'm your host, Chris Mayfield. I'm a Chief Warrant Officer 5, currently serving at Marine Corps Recruiting Command on the National Training Team. On today's show, we connect with Master Gunnery Sergeant Jamie Hassett, the current recruiting instructor for Recruiting Station Baltimore. In our discussion, he described what he thinks it takes to build a winning team and what the role of the recruiting instructor is in helping develop one. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I did, and as always, stay Semper Connected. Now joining us on the show, Master Gunnery Sergeant Jamie Hassett. Master Gunny, welcome to the show. Hey, sir. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Really, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, I appreciate you, you know, reaching out to me when we first launched the podcast. You hit me up on Facebook and kind of asked, hey, sir, what other topics are we going to be talking about on this podcast? And in true recruiter fashion, I said, uh, I'm interested. Tell me more about what you're thinking. And you said, I think we should talk about leadership. And at that point, I was I was intrigued and definitely interested. And so we sat down for a little bit when I was in your area not too long ago. And you talked to me about what you thought leadership was. And I agree that that's something our listeners probably need to hear about. You know, though we talk about recruiting and TTPs, we've we've introduced the monitor. We introduced the previous recruiter school chief instructor. But you being an RI and about to depart the pattern into retirement, I thought it was awesome to get your perspective on what the last two plus years have looked like as an RI. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I listened to the, you know, the first two podcasts uh, that you did. And I hope everybody kind of really does look at it and reach out because there's some there's valuable information that come across in this platform, you know, that and what you're doing reaches you know, a, a lot of people. So they, if, if they haven't listened to it, they should. The the last two for sure. So I was I was excited. So when I saw it, when you, you crossed that social media platform, I jumped right into it. And, uh, you know, I, I picked up something off of each one of them, which means we, we can all still learn a little bit. We don't know it all. Um, so every, every podcast that you've had the last two, even being in the business for a little bit, you know, I picked up some new information and, and I valued it. So it, it was good. So that's where I was eager to be like, Hey, that was awesome. Sir. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm digging it and pushing it out. And then of course you, you know, you, you reach back and you have a new lead and, uh, and then here we are, which is great. Awesome. Yeah. Appreciate the support. And, and I'm, I'm, it's awesome to have you on the show before we go too much further. Can you tell us a little about yourself? Where are you from? So I am uh, from a small town called Bradford, Pennsylvania. If uh, you've ever, ever known a Zippo lighter, had a Zippo lighter, that's like our claim to fame, right? So Zippo lighters are made in Bradford, PA, um, along with, uh, you know, Kendall Motor Oil, which has changed companies, you know, throughout the year. So it was a pretty big oil town and a lighter town, but small, you know, nestled uh, just south of Buffalo, north of Pittsburgh, but right on that PA New York State border. So we were technically closer to Buffalo. All our channels, you know, were, were from Buffalo. Um, so my house, you know, the farm I, I grew up on, we were, we had land that actually went into New York state, um, but the house was on the PA side. So it, it, it pretty cool place to grow up small town, but that's where I'm from. Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I know I will, hopefully other listeners picked up on that. Anytime I use a Zippo lighter moving forward and I'm lighting up a cigar 
or, or a candle for the wife or what have you. If it's a Zippo, I'm going to remember this conversation. That's pretty cool. That's it. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yep. All right. So aside from being from a small town and your options sounded like you could do motor oil or Zippos, you decided to join the Marine Corps. Can you tell us why you decided to join the Marines? Well, I was, uh, I grew up in a military family and I, I think, you know, most of, you know, the greater generation, the greatest generation, um, you know, between my grandfather was an army guy. My, uh, uncle, great uncle was an 80 guy. My dad was an air force guy and then an army guy. Interesting enough. Um, you know, and then, you know, my grandmother was in the coast guard, so it was there. Um, but I fought it because it wasn't going to be me. Right. And, um, dive into it. My parents did their, their due diligence. Um, every recruiter that ever called me, I was like, I'm going to college, I'm going to college, I'm going to college, I'm going to college. You know, so they, they lined up a college for me. Everything was good. Um, but guess what? Um, I decided not to go to college. <laughs> so, um, diving, I guess, into it a little bit more, not to get ahead, but my cousin, well, I was a deputy pro. Um, my cousin was joining the Marine Corps. And uh, I just was not mature enough, I think, at that time to, to, you know, continue to do anything in college, right? So it was more party, party, party. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I'll listen to your guy. And I sat down with that recruiter. And as we talked about before, November 10th, um, in 1994, I went to MEPS. I swore in. Really didn't know the significance of it. Um, and about two weeks later, towards, you know, Right, right before Thanksgiving or so, I was I was gone. I was going to Paris Island. So, and then here I am. Awesome. So, if the listeners didn't pick up on that, you are a master gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps. You enlisted in 1994, and you enlisted on the Marine Corps birthday, November 10th. Can you confirm that again? That that's 100. percent I mean, you, you can go back through you know all the resumes and stuff I've been doing. I I can confirm it. Uh, I've got my old contracts and proof. That is that is awesome. That that is pure motivation. So you fought the you fought the urge to serve that was planted in you from your family coming up. Like most kids that joined the Marine Corps, you were you had other plans and some circumstances and events changed in your life. There was uh your cousin who was already in the depth, he referred you to your recruiter, y'all kindled a relationship, and from there you enlisted on November 10th. And two weeks later, you were at Paris Island, South Carolina for recruit training. Yeah, I, I yes. I think it was supposed to be longer. Um, I, you know, I'm trying to go back that far. You know, I'll blame my TBI. But, you know, I was trying to go back further. I, I think we were supposed to go later, but we were like, hey, we need people to go. You know, we were direct we, we filled some shipping holes. And uh, he was leaving, and they said, hey, we can get you two out of here together. Um, and uh, at that time, I both uh, infantry contracts when. I, you know, in my mind, I don't think it was as cool back then um, as it is now, um, or at least in demand. Let me say that. So, and I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. We'll, we'll, we'll go. And, um, and that's what happened. So I went to boot camp. They were talking about general orders and I thought they were talking about general change chicken. You know, I had no clue. So <laughs> yeah, not, uh, not a lot of time to prepare for boot camp with about two weeks flash to bang from depth to ship. No, 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 sir. But, uh, you, you, you know, I, at least at that point, I was in pretty good physical shape, still an athlete. That's kind of what got me through it. And really that determination not to quit. That was in me. I'm not quitting. 
Um, no matter what I said, I'm just not quitting. I made a commitment. I'm going to ride through it. Um, I got through it. I became a Marine. That that, uh, that is an important trait to have, not only in boot camp, but throughout your career in the Marine Corps is to never quit. You know, you brought up athleticism and being physically prepared to go to boot camp. So with you opening that door, I can't help but ask, do you have a favorite sports team that you follow? I do. I am I am a diehard through and through uh, Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So not, you know, where my town was situated, it was it was split, right? Yeah, even though, even though they weren't PA, they they had a lot of PA fans. Um, but my uh, my uncles, uh, there's no there's no other fan I could have been. They would not have let me. Um, I've since done that to my kids. No matter where we go or where they've been born, you, you will be Steelers fans. So you can be your mommy's Buffalo fans as long as they're not playing, right? So, but outside of that, they're. We're, we're Steelers fans through and through with the, a, a big love for Buffalo as well. So Right. Okay. So just so I can properly frame this in my head and paint this picture for the listeners, where you're from in Pennsylvania is far enough north that you're, you're close to New York. So people that live where you're from, some are Buffalo fans and some are Pittsburgh fans, or at least they have a choice between which team they're going to follow in the NFL. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, because if you if you went straight south of Buffalo and you hit the border, like straight south of PA, New York State, uh, the right side of Erie, that that's where Bradford's at. It's right on the border. OK, got it. That, that, that's, that's pretty cool. But you didn't have a choice. You were going to be a Pittsburgh fan. What's there? What's the thing? The terrible towel? Is that what that yellow towel says? Terrible towel or something like that? It's a terrible My, Meyer Cope's terrible towel. Yes, sir. Yeah. A terrible <laughs> towel. Um, I got I got a few of them around, and uh, if my wife gets a chance, she tries to take them and wash a car with them. Right. So, yeah. Well, again, she's a Buffalo fan, so we uh, we get along. Awesome. So you enlisted in '94. That puts you at what 20, 27 years? 20, 27 years right now, coming up on or just past? Yes, sir. I, now I'll be coming up on twenty-seven years. Okay, so you're coming up on twenty-seven years. You have not been in recruiting for twenty-seven years. You do not enlist to be a recruiter. So, can you tell us a little bit about your time in the Marine Corps prior to becoming a recruiter? Yeah, I sure can. We, uh, you know, so uh, you know, after boot camp, obviously, I, I went to at the end, which was SOI, um, and they had the SOI MCT split. Um, then I ended up in uh, Second Battalion, Eighth Marines. So I was a two eight guy. So I started as an infantry guy. Oh uh, three eleven. Uh, did a couple. Uh, did a couple. Uh, did a couple of pumps with them. Uh, one of the last UDPs uh, that we were on. I was in uh, Seoul, Korea. Uh, of course, we were we were doing operations in Seoul, Korea, or training in Seoul, Korea, and then when. Uh, uh, we went back to Okinawa. Uh, pretty much everybody started reenlistment packages, etc. At the time, I was the platoon sergeant, so uh, I ended up staying back in Seoul. We got to Okinawa. Once we got to Okinawa, we were pretty much ready to retrograde back. So, like, hey, we'll do your reenlistment stuff later. Um, I got back to the states, uh, and again, you know, I was hesitant on, on what I was going to do to regardless. So. We got back to the States, went to try to do it. And, you know, as you and I have talked about before, it was kind of, um, at that time, you know, it was 98, I think, you know, if I recall right. So it would have been like 1998. Um, <clears throat> that's when President Clinton was in office and we were kind of drawn back. We've seen this before, right? I mean, you know, increased drawback, increased drawback. And, and what a lot of the Marines are going through right now, you know, and tier one, tier twos and reenlistments, 
I wasn't wasn't that I wasn't a tier one reenlistment. It just I kind of basically put my stuff in late, right? Um, so it became one of those. And again, this is you know my recollection, my you know recalling memory, which may or may not be great. Um, it's like, hey, we can put you on extension, but you got to go to this company and then go to Haiti after that, et cetera. And I just wanted to stay with our guys. And then I was like, well, you know what? Then I'm going to get out and I'm going to wait for it to open up. Again, immature, naive, right? So I'm going to get out, wait for it to open up. Um, so that happened. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I knew I was coming back in. I sat around for about, I think, five months. She put two months of terminal on there and I came back in. But at that time, I had... Um, what I had to do basically, you know, hospitals for the Marine Corps. And they're like, Hey, there's this, this, and this, um, artillery was open cause it was a hot fill and it was still, comp- you know, ground, ground related. So I'm like, well, I'll just go to artillery. And then I became an artillery guy. So, and then of course, you know, young Sergeant Hasek had to go back to school at, uh, um, you know, a lot in Oklahoma and, um, to go through my artillery school, you know, and truth be told at that time to my surprise, you know, there were a lot of other sergeants from different MOSs, you know, so that hot pill thing worked, right? So, and, uh, you know, I figured I was going to be like, you know, big man on the block, right? You know, big man on campus. And I went there and there was a lot of other sergeants. And, uh, but, you know, that, again, I, I, I transferred artillery and, you know, and I have a love for both those, those MOSs, like between the infantry skills that I, I, I was provided and then, moving on to artillery, taking those into that artillery community, um, and then being able to use them, you know, and, and deployments and, and combat operations in Iraq, which, you know, the Marine Corps gave me this skill set that, you know, that first 14 years ish of my life before career recruiting came into play, um, you know, we're just building blocks to, to, to who I am. Yeah. That, that's awesome. You know, they got a book out there that kind of describes what you're talking about. It's called range. You know, and you, you've got athletes that a lot of them early on, at least the that's the genesis of the book is, you know, a specialization really holding people back. Right. And I, I think that you having multiple primary MOSs before you even came on recruiting duty and you even spoke to how it helped you operationally, having a better understanding of what the ground side does, i.e. the infantry and how the artillery supports their maneuver. And, and the missions that they have helped you become a better artillery man and basically gave you a range of skills that other infantry or artillery folks may not have. So that's pretty good, uh, you know, early in your career to have that kind of range. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, and I, and granted we're, we're, we're going in more of a different direction, but the artillery guys, like I, I think, and again, speaking from our artillery brothers, I mean, we have more assets and weapons than most infantry companies, right? So, but nobody gets trained in, in the machine guns, 50 cal, Mark 19s, et cetera. Um, and I did. So, you know, you got a cook on a, on a 50 cal and you're the, at that time, you know, local security chief, you're teaching these guys how to implement that weapon system against the enemy, right? So um, it was cool. It, it was it was it was a super cool good transition, um, and it, it, they kind of married up perfectly. And as an artillery guy, I didn't have to pack stuff in anymore. I wasn't humping as much, right? So I could take as much stuff as I want, and put it in the back of a truck. So that uh, that that was a win. Be, being in the field was a little more enjoyable on that side, huh? It, it hundred yeah hundred percent it was yeah. <laughs> it, I can tell you stories about guys who would bring out old PlayStation video games and hook them to seven ton batteries, right? right. So. Uh, 
Right. But uh, it, it, it was it, w- it was a good time. OK, so you started out in the infantry, you ended up in artillery. And at some point you realize, hey, I got to I got to get some more range. I got to go out on a B billet. So you just went and found somebody and said, hey, I want to go on recruiting duty. And, and then now you're on recruiting or what? So here, here, here's uh, another interesting part. Um, you know, previously to, well, previously, as I was an arty guy, I got, I, I sustained an injury with my shoulder. Like my clavicle, you know, is still like a grade three, and then my shoulder kept separating the whole night. Um, nothing that Marines don't deal with, right? We, we all get hurt. Um, so, but you know, at at that time, you know, once I came back from, once I came back from Iraq. Um, it was a little bit turbulent, you know, um, and I ended up having my kid as a single parent. Uh, so my family, I had family in South Carolina and I was able to, you know, have them take care of my kid. And I was going to go down to Paris Island and become a drill instructor. Um, so I went down to DI school, um, didn't do bad first time around, a little tough, right. Um, went down to DI school, but about two, three weeks from graduation, you know, the, the shoulder popped out, gave out on me again. And um, I, I tried to stay in the fight, but it was obvious that, that, that I was hurting. And uh, I just couldn't finish it. Um, so I was a DI school dropout. Um, so I go back. I heal. No surgery. Uh, probably around six months later, I'm like, I'm going to do this again. And uh, I call. You went you know, back to DI school? Yeah, t- twice. Twice. <laughs> I went back. Now, granted, now let me tell you, the second time was actually pretty good because the teach backs, memorization, and everything that you have to do in the schoolhouse at that point was I had it down, right? I had books. I mean, I had the I had the answers to the test. You had so an I, advantage. Yeah, you had the upper hand. I did. I did. So I really did coast down that road um, uh, rather well. Uh, but uh, second time around, uh, around that same time frame, you know, same thing happened. But the problem was I couldn't hide it because I couldn't even get my shoulder back in. I mean, I was, I remember trying to run around a garbage can or something and try to pop it in myself, like leave a weapon or something. Right. Like I was Mel Gibson and, um, it just, it didn't work. Uh, so I had to go back down. Uh, at that point, they sent me out to see an orthopedic surgeon who said, you, you got to have a lot of surgery. Um, they tried to figure out how to keep me around, you know, you, you know, you're doing something right when the first arm brings you in, you know, from there. And, and it's just, just, he's devastated as well. Like, cause you're, you know, I was a good dude, you know, I was, I was a good Marine. I was trying and, uh, just physically the limitations stopped me from doing that. And so at that time, you know, at PCS and you would PCS back and forth. Like I got PCS back again, um, to an artillery unit. Uh, I had a couple of surgeries and an outstanding command that was super understanding and, um, you know, I got close to that bed board thing, but that's where I learned if you don't want to quit, just like the boot camp thing, if you don't quit, the, the Marines, the Marines around your leadership will help you get to where you got to go. Right. Yep. Don't quit. So, so they did. And, uh, you know, here I am again, trying to go back down to DI school a third time. Um, some Marine leaders stepped in and mentored me. And as we talked about before, again, at this period, I was a single parent. Every time I deploy, my, my son would go to um, my parents. I would deploy, come back, get him. And then in between field ops, had a, a network of Marine Corps family support that was just amazing that would take him in and, you know, and do all that stuff. And I, I couldn't imagine doing any other job, how I had to deal with the demands that we had to deal with without the network of, of Marines and Marine leaders and mentors and the families, you know, to be able to help me get to where I am today. You know, so, I mean, that's kudos on that. But 
I got Matt Gordon, like this third thing's probably not gonna work, man. Right? <laughs> let's uh let's let's change it up a little bit. And then the uh the the recruiting thing came up. I'm like, man. So I did volunteer for recruiting. I did volunteer. Um so it, it, and I at the time saw there's a sergeant major out of recruiting station Buffalo that I worked with him prior to, and he by name requested me, and that's where it started for the whole recruiting thing. Okay, so so you went to DI school initially through through some physical limitations due to a shoulder injury sustained while you were in artillery. That didn't work out. You knew you still needed to get a B billet to be competitive for promotion and continue your career. Some mentors kind of pointed you towards recruiting duty. You knew a sergeant major that was on recruiting duty at the time. And so he brought you along to Buffalo and that's where you started your recruiting tour. That's where I started. It started in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, again, so my, my, my wife now, who was my girlfriend way back then did move with me, but you know, like, we weren't married. So I was still a single parent. Um, but I had my family care plan. I had family that was close by. Um, so my, my mom and that's, that's, you know, I ended, ended up there. Um, I was supposed to go, as we were talking about before, to another recruiting substation. And uh, on my way up, I get the call. Maybe we need you to go here. And then I'm like, aye, aye, sorry, maybe. And uh, then I ended up in here. Okay. So so we're in Buffalo now. So that's where you started as a recruiter. There was a little adversity there in terms of you were supposed to go to this RSS and mid-stride, they move you to another. But... Nonetheless, you end up in Erie, Pennsylvania. You're going to finish up your career in Baltimore, Maryland, as the recruiting instructor. Can you talk me through the path and the different billets that led you from being a new recruiter in Erie, Pennsylvania, to the recruiting instructor in Baltimore, Maryland? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, of course, you know, we we all started off at some point in staff at CYCs, the boots that are on the ground. Um, from there, I had the opportunity once I became an 8412 to go up to uh, Buffalo and uh, move up there and then become the ARI operations chief, ARI operations chief. And then, um, you know, I got I did get a year under my belt uh, as the ARI up there and I'm proud of, you know, so I got a fitness report claims it. And, you know, and there's a lot of hard work uh, that we had to put in there. But that was a pretty big turning point for Buffalo. Um, against, you know, some, you know, adversities for sure. And then, uh, then, um, I got selected to go down to officer candidate school to be the liaison. So it was a liaison for officer candidate school and for Marine Corps recruiting command. And then I moved up to officer programs as the operations chief there. And, um, you know, knowing I was on my last leg selection and promoted was reaching out to where I could go. And there are a couple of places I knew I wanted to go back to the first Marine Corps district. That's where I came from. And, you know, I had a couple opportunities, but Baltimore is the one we settled on because, you know, the, the brand new command, right? Brand new command group. Um, you know, I, I just wanted one more time in the fight before I knew I retired. That's, that's it. Okay. Awesome. Th- thanks for sharing that. So you started in the first district as a recruiter. And you're going to leave, you're going to retire from the first district as the recruiting instructor. Yes, sir. Yeah. Wouldn't have any. Well, that's awesome. So let's get down to, you know, why you reached out to me and why you thought it was important to to get this topic on the show. And in conversation, you sent me a PowerPoint that you built 
and it's a presentation that you had delivered, I think, at some district training recently. And I was extremely interested after looking through the PowerPoint. That's really what I want to talk about. And the title of the PowerPoint is Building a Winning Team, right? So can you can you give us an overview of, of what the purpose of this presentation was in terms of building a winning team? Yeah, yes, sir. So going, you know, I going to Baltimore and, and you know, and as we, we increased and things, and, and let me preface this by even that PowerPoint and everything I say, I don't, I don't really think I have an original idea, um, but I'm smart enough to know the good ideas. And I kind of capture things from everywhere else. So as we talk about things, if we see things in here, you know, that people might be familiar with, good. Um, I didn't make this, you know, I took a little bit of Marine Corps stuff, you know, I took, you know, Marine Corps side of me and I took the recruiting side of me and everything that I've kind of had and it kind of mashed it together a little bit and, and I, I hodgepodged it. And, and the reason I did this was because we, there were a lot of conversations in the beginning about, you know, what are you guys are doing? What are you doing? What are you doing differently? Um, and I didn't think I was doing, or we, I shouldn't even say I, again, we weren't doing anything differently. Um, together as a team the most, but here's some of the things that we did do, you know, and I was given the opportunity at a 84-12 conference uh, for the first Marine Corps district two years ago, you know, when before the whole COVID thing happened, and I got to present this to some of the Marines, and this is kind of where this came up from, and, and the reason being was, you know, as a command group, as career recruiters, as Marine leaders, essentially, um, it's important for us to kind of go back to some of the foundations. And this is really just what I came up with. You know, it's not the end all. It's not perfect, nor am I. And some of the things that we're about ready to talk about, I can tell you honestly, you know yourself and your own weaknesses, right? Um, you know, strength and weaknesses. I don't do all these things every day, but I try to do them most of the days. Um, and that's where this came from. Okay, awesome. I want to unpack just a little bit about what you said. First, I'm the king of plagiarization as well. And and any somewhat smart person is going to do that. Why reinvent the wheel? Let's let's take some lessons that we've learned or let's take a product that someone else has made and make it our own or make it a little bit better, right? So that we can all grow from that. That's the fastest way to get about doing anything. So I commend you for taking all the lessons that you've learned and some products from other people and putting that into one easy to digest product. Another thing that I would that I want to highlight to listeners because some are going to be seasoned in recruiting and some may be brand new. When people come to recruiting, they think it's just this weird thing that's totally different from the Marine Corps. There are some skills and some knowledge that you will learn that will help you perform better in recruiting, but the foundation is basic Marine Corps leadership. And when I'm looking through your PowerPoint, Everything in here really sounds like basic Marine Corps leadership, but what it does, it brings it back to the forefront, you know, in challenging times, in adversity, when you're new to something, you feel that you got to do things different. And the truth is, you just got to go back to the basics. And it sounds like that's what this is all about. Is that true? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, again, not to sound cliche, but I couldn't agree with you more. Right. <laughs> you know? So, um, it, it does go back down to the basics. The verbiage might be different, you know, and I try to translate this more into, you know, in, into our field. But as we go through there, you know, when we talk about, like, for instance, get ahead, know your Marines and capabilities, it's, we're talking about using tact, you know, and then and in Marine Corps leadership, our leadership manual talks about tact. And it's probably one of the few ones, you know, that I've seen um, against the other services that bring that up. And we'll talk a little bit about you know, just how to engage them, 
Um, so again, the verbiage is different, but it goes back to the absolute simple basics of Marine Corps leadership uh, and development and really ourselves as well. Okay, awesome. Well, let's get into the first bullet. The, the first thing on the, on the presentation, the bullet in big, bold letters says, let winners feel like winners. Right, right. So, you know, I do think <clears throat> on a recruiting, excuse me, on a recruiting side of, of this, you know, um, leading team success, our team success and, and making sure it's a shared focus with them is extremely important, right? And and most of us do this naturally as well. You know, we, we typically, you, you ask me, you know, how are we able to do what we do? Well, I don't do it, right? The Marines do it. Uh, and then making sure that we, we we give them those opportunities and acknowledge that no matter how small or how big it is, you know, in private and public forum, right? Because if we complement their success, big or small, um, both publicly and privately, when you place a high value on each one of them, it will contribute and open and share bonds and they will know that they are valued. Um, that's, that's huge. And we do this a lot. So something as simple as you make shipping. Right. Okay, cool. You get a little banner to put on your guide on. Well, that's that's a big deal, right? Because, yeah, shipping's king. And, yeah, it's an expectation. But at the same time, you know, let's not overarchingly look at the guys that are just doing all the big stuff, right? The guys are over contracting. Not to take away from that, but look at the other everyone else that's able to succeed and, and, and make that. And then make it publicly and privately known. We do a lot of that. And it helps. It helps the Marines when, when they're in their fight. Um, it makes them feel appreciated. And it's really the easiest way for us to build confidence with them um, and to offer like positive acknowledgement. We're very easy at negative. So am I. I can gravitate towards the negative, towards somebody else a million times. Ask me what my strengths are. I'll give you that. Tell me, ask me what my weaknesses are. Okay, then I'm probably going to have to sit down and think about it because we don't want to acknowledge that. But all those little wins that we do, right? Because every small victory wins the bigger battle. And if we if we acknowledge that with them and we show them that, we continue to do that. Um, it's been harder. And I, I tell you, I noticed, you know, we didn't have all hands, COVID stuff. We weren't all together. The dynamics changed. Marines come and go. There's new ones that don't know. We're not presenting that stuff or acknowledge that at least in a public forum or doing it privately and smaller with their, with their, you know, RSSs. Um, but nonetheless, like this is showing me how important it absolutely is, especially, you know, within this year to, to do that. So that's what I meant by that. Let winners feel like winners, right? And it's tough. You know, it's, it's tough. You know? it, it is. And it is very easy to focus on the negative. You know, you didn't do this, you didn't do that or what have you, but, in an effort to ensure winners feel like winners, you also have to give affirmation when, when you do a good job, right? And it's easy to overlook the small things, i.e. they made shipping, give them a small banner. I know there's some mindsets out there, oh, that was their job or that's what they're supposed to do. And that's typically coming from someone that's never had a ship mission, right? There's a lot that goes into making ship. It doesn't just happen. So I commend you. I, I, I don't disagree. You got to let winners feel like winners and, and, and work with the others that, that might not be winning in that same vein. The, the next bullet, big, bold letters, know your Marines and capabilities. 
Right. So, you know, know your Marines and, and, and their capabilities kind of goes back to, to me, kind of, it goes back to tact, right? So we talk about tact. Um, each one of our Marines are going to come up and they're going to have their own unique set of needs, right? You know that word needs. They're going to have their own um, different personality traits. Um, and then even myself, you know, one person's strength in whatever area, you know, might be another person's weakness. And then those two can kind of, you know, connect. But the big thing with that is here, here, here's in, in that slide, I'm going to read off it. Um, you must be emotionally intelligent enough to bend your communication style to click with individual personalities you are working with. So we, we say emotionally intelligent. And, uh, you know, and, and what does that mean? Well, to me, that's just coaching, being able to, to read the individual and the person and figure out, you know, what their language is for each one of them and learn how to communicate that way because it empowers them to become the best and it helps us as managers manage them, know what weaknesses they have, what their personalities they are, and then train them through those weaknesses. Um, so that's like the cliff note version of it. But truthfully, that is nothing more than that, knowing how to interact with, with other individuals. And, uh, you know, I, again, emotional intelligence, you know, it depends on who you are is looked at as like either soft or weak, but it's just being able to read other people. It's, it's a people business, whether it's the applicant, whether it's the family, whether it's another command group member, you know, whether it's higher, you know, it's, it's being able to communicate in that aspect. And that's, that, that's where that came from. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more to use the old recruiter language as well. And something I'll share, and I share this with a lot of the courses, and, and not to get sappy here, and I'll tie it back into Marine Corps. When, when me and my wife were going through the process of getting married and we were going through some premarital counseling, we came privy to a book called The Five Love Languages. And, and it really describes basically different personalities and what speaks to each person, right? The, the things that speak to me may not necessarily speak to my wife, but if I know what does speak to her, I can change my communication pattern to meet her needs so that she's getting her love tank filled up, right? And, and it, without fail, her love language and mine are totally different. And I'm really good and it's native to me to speak my own love language because those are the things that are important to me. It's extremely hard for me to speak her. So I have to really work at being a better communicator in the language in which meets her needs. And now we'll take it out of the sappy side of the business when I talk about that. It's as simple as knowing the souls of your Marines. That, that's what we say in the Marine Corps, know the souls of your Marines. But when we say that, a lot of people don't understand what that means. And, and it means finding out what makes them tick, understanding what their capabilities are, understanding what their skill levels are. And if they're not where they need to be, work with them, coach them, mentor them and train them to build up their proficiency so that you can get it is, you know, get out of them what it is that you desire. So well done. Any comments on that? No, no, it, that, that was great. That summed it up. That's, you know, and that's kind of where that's going to. And, and again, go back, tact, right? Good Marine Corps leadership will get tacked. Um, and that's what that's about. hundred percent. Awesome. All right. The next bullet, be protective. I, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that one there. What are we talking about? So, you know, I, I say it probably too much and I, I, you know, I take it from, you know, you got to protect this house, right. But be protective of your Marines. Right. And, and what I mean by that is you got to have adoration for each other and respect for them. Um, we do have to be authority for sure. You know, as a leader, you need to look for guidance. 
Uh, we need to look for their approval. As you were, let me take a step back. As a leader, they're looking for our guidance and approval. You know, when, when Marines actually feel like they're respected and listen, here, here's the truth, right? I mean, I, I'm retiring and you know that, you know, but the truth is, you know, back in the day when people would come and throw all your stuff around and, and trash your house, um, that was just the way it is. Now, I, I'm not saying that we can't be that authority figure, but I'm also saying that we need to continue to acknowledge and respect them as individuals and Marines specifically because they, they got to where they're at at some point. They made it through the armbrand. Uh, and to look at it in that scope, and, and not to be what people would deem a soft, you know, still be the authority, but have respect for them. You know, make them feel like they're, that they are valued, you know, which that's going to build a positive, hardworking environment. Now, it's it's not going to be every Marine, let's be honest. There are some Marines that are just not, they're just not responding to the training, they're not responding to what we're doing. So I'm not talking about those individuals, but don't go into the masses looking at that individual situation, right? Go into the masses looking at these, most of our Marines right now, a good chunk of them are warriors. After the last 20 something years that we're getting, these guys have been in situations in truth. Some of us may have not even, you know, so I can respect that in that aspect, but I still need to be that authority, but I can respect what they've done and who they are. Again, not, not the single grouping of Marines, but the majority of them. And when you, when, you, when you go in there, here's the thing. This is old school stuff that I brought out. The B-L-N-T, right? Believe, like, trust. You say that for, you know, when we're dealing with influencers and applicants and others around us. But if, if we do that, that they believe you, right? Then they start to like you and that they trust you. That's, there's a difference there, right? That's when... You go into a shop as a recruiter instructor or an ARI or any command group member, and you say, hey, this is what you need to do. They're going to look at that, but like, we're talking chaos and craziness. But they're going to be like, all right, I trust him, right? I'm going to do this. And that's where things start changing, right? I need you to work systematically. I know you're great at doing this. I know you can do all this, but I need you to implement a complete system. You think it's admin, but it's not. And this is the steps that you need to get there. Let's work on this time management. And, and they like, you know what? I don't really think that that's going to work, but that's what he told me. And I'm going to move in that direction. And then when failure happens in that, you know, they got to trust it. We're going we're gonna to be rock solid for them. Then we're going to spend the time to analyze, correct, recalibrate, and train them. That's what we do. And it can't be just a beat down all the time. Right. It's got to be like, all right, Marine, cool. You're doing this. Let's move in that direction. You know, but that's that's I know be productive probably isn't the right thing for that, but I couldn't figure out anything else to put it. So um, but the biggest thing of that, probably that be productive is you got to work with them. If you are not there in the fight with the Marine at this level and you're not putting out that work with them and it, it comes at cost. I, I get this. It comes at cost to our families. It comes at cost to our time, you know, that, you know, it comes at cost to where you can't even cut your grass, but you got to pay somebody else to do it, you know, but, but that's okay. Cause we're taking care of the Marines when they're with them. That goes a long way. So that goes back in the old stuff. So like that BLT believe like and trust, you know, be productive, probably not as much for the Marine that it is the command group and the leaders that are in charge of them. Um, you know, we've been bestowed that opportunity you know, and, and to, to, to be able to lead them. That's that one. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And I like that. I like that acronym, the BLT, Believe, Like, and Trust. And then just to kind of unpack what you were describing there with the bullet point, be protective. You know, yes, you need to protect your Marines. They need to understand that you're going to protect them. And others need to know that they can't come in and find them unguarded. Like you're going to take care of your Marines. You're going to protect those Marines. But it comes in different forms. And you kind of talked about that. You know, I, the the analogy I use is with my kids and anyone that has kids or, or can relate to a niece or a nephew. If you leave it up to them, they'll eat ice cream and chocolate all day, every day. Like they want the candy. Right. But you know that you can't have candy and chocolate at every meal every day. And so you don't allow them to have that in their mind. You don't like them. You don't you're not taking care of them. But the truth is, you're protecting them from maybe things that they don't necessarily know. And the way you describe that is I don't need you to just do a piece of the system. I need you to use the whole system because it was designed to integrate with each other for you to reach its full potential. Right. And so sometimes holding them accountable, holding them to task can be viewed as they're not protecting me. They're not taking care of me. But the truth is, you really are. You're protecting them from themselves. Yeah, that was, hey, you said it really good. You put the slide <laughs> together? No, I, I couldn't articulate it, you know, as well as you did. But that that's on point. That was really good. Well, I appreciate that. Again, you put the bullets up here. I'm just trying to help, you know, shape the conversation for the listeners. But that's what I gathered from that. And, and whether you felt you adequately described that, I think you did wonderful. So thank you. The next bullet, big, bold letters, allow Marines to be unprompted. Yeah. So this goes back to like, you know, and I, I try to establish, hey, this is an independent duty. And um, it's an independent duty, SDA, that's rated highly, you know, as your effectiveness as a Marine later on in the future for a reason, because they are it's independent, right? It's like I, I tell the Marines all the time, listen, that volume from one doesn't just belong to staff and CIC. There's one chapter and it really is dedicated and the rest is for you. You know, so um, but this really ties to me, you know, and going back to those base, basic strengths and weaknesses, right? And this includes myself, you know, so we we want to support and encourage that natural instinct and desire for every individual mind. We're, we're not great at some things, but some things we're really good at. Um, and it, it needs to keep them on track, but you got to give them the freedom to work, you know, naturally. You know, and again, we talk about gut instinct. We can go back into the primal brain and all this stuff. But some people have a knack for certain things. And, you know, especially those young staff in QICs, uh, we, we instill them. Like, you know, now, the, you know, what we have that uh, my boss and I, my boss really created a base off some ideas. We'll put a, we put a big thing in the wall in the conference room, which you see. And it's for the station command. It's not for our eyes or CEOs or major. It's for the station commanders. So every station commander that leaves there successfully, right? And it, they leave there basically. They didn't get fired. You know, they get to put their name placard on that wall. And that means something. And, and granted, you know, it just started last few years in that small but let me tell you why. You know, it kind of goes back to acknowledging the Marines and their efforts at the same time. But we allowed them to be commanders on the field. Uh, we encouraged them to have you know, their own spontaneity and be responsive in their own way. You know, and when we do this, it really does give us what I call that bird's eye view into where our, Marine, where our Marine strengths and weaknesses are. 
because they're going to fall. They're going to fumble. And it, it's up to us to go and let them do that. You know, typically it's not catastrophic, right? It's not, you know, going to end the world stuff. And then we, we can go in and then know how to coach them and train them to be better accomplished. You know, so when you have that beginning product of that, you know, as a nine month eval or six month eval, you know, is what we're doing. And by the time we get there and we allow them to do that, they're going to be that much more educated. It's, it's not as micromanaged, if that makes sense. No, that makes 100% of, uh, 100% sense. You know, you mentioned independent duty, and, and it is an independent duty where, where people need to be able to, you know, shoot, move, and convince based on their own natural instincts and, and the desires of individual Marines. But I also, in the same vein, think that this is probably the most team-oriented SDA that you can be on. You know, without every person pulling on the rope and every person doing their part to grow as a leader and tap into their natural instincts and desires as an individual, you know, we are all the team is all a sum of those individuals. So this is an absolutely team oriented sport. What are your thoughts on that? No, no, I, I, I agree with you for sure. Um, you know, so, and again, when I go back to the individual, it's like the individual recruiter has more responsibilities. The staff in SC does for sure. But this, this whole, this whole thing we do, you know, um, not only impacts, you know, lives in the Marine Corps and Marine Corps future, but impacts those individuals in a massive way. Right. And it, it, you can't do that without everybody being on the same page. And that, that's something we'll talk about a little bit later too. Yeah. Well, well put, you know, the individual actions of everyone account for the team effort. And so if everyone's not pulling that hurts because when, when someone's not pulling their weight, and doing their part, it affects the entire team. Okay, moving on to that next bullet. Don't micromanage. You mentioned it in the in the last discussion, but you want to unpack what you mean by that a little bit? Yeah, I do because this is a, this is one of my weaknesses, right? So uh, I'll just be honest. I, I've got a lot of um, this is absolutely one of mine, you know. But you know whether it's my ego that would get in the way or my micromanage, I've over controlled. Like I have to be involved in a lot of stuff. I've known this. I fight this, um, really on the daily, you know, personally and professionally. Right. Uh, and it doesn't all fit in one night, nice neat box. Right. But there's nothing worse than, you know, if, if we're giving them, uh, authority in the micromanaging and holding that stuff over their heads based off of the word and deed and action that we're controlling, it, it's not going to allow them to do what we were talking about before grow as a team, you know, move forward with their own decisions. So for Marines to succeed, you know, we got to stop poking them ish, right? I'd say ish, you know, uh, so, and, and what I mean by the ish part is, yes, we're still observing and managing them, um, and we're diving into things, but we can't be them, right? We got to have successful staff and CYCs, you know, that are able to operate on their own, successful recruiters that can operate on their own. Uh, without our involvement, because if, if we have to be there all the time, then something's broke we're not doing our job. So it might be hard for us to let go, you know, but let them work. But people work more effectively when their mental flow isn't consistently di- disrupted, right? That's the bottom line. I pulled that from some other book, but if we're always in their stuff, they're not going to work as effectively. You know, same thing when we as a command group go in. Yes, I used to be in some stations until like 2200 all the time, right? Be there at 7, be out at 2200. 
Um, yeah, I'm not saying we shouldn't put that work in, but I'm saying we still need to let them flex and, and breathe because as long, it's hard for us, you know, not for me to not be controlling in nature, but um, I got to be able to stop, you know, being that, having that overbearing impulse. That's a me thing and a lot of us, I think. Yeah, I, I will tell you that I, I'm confident that a lot of Marines struggle with with micromanagement or control. And we all have it in varying degrees. And sometimes we confuse management with micromanagement. And let me kind of describe my experience on that. If, if you've got a group of people who have not been managed and have been allowed to just run amok, if you will, when you inject someone new into a team or into the process that begins to do their part in terms of managing them, they feel micromanaged. And, and so there is definitely a difference between managing and micromanaging. But I, I struggle with that, too. On recruiting, though, you describe, you know, staying at an RSS till 2200 or coming in at 07. What are some other illustrations in today's recruiting environment that you think command groups unwittingly or unknowingly do that could be either perceived or real micromanagement at the staff? And so I see love. Well, we, we, we can do a lot of things, um, you know, so I mean, I could take like operations, for instance, right? We're, they're going to pull numbers, but um, so operations calls you in the morning on Friday for training, right? So they're trying to train the Marines, got to do their numbers, but then something else happens and we call them or admin has to call them or supply has to call them or the XO has to call them, right? So, you know, I, I, one of the bigger disruptions, I think, is understanding that we expect them, for instance, and I'm using Friday as an example, you know, but the, but the staff in CYC is trying to train his brains. Um, Granny puts his numbers in, does his thing, but we're all bombarding them. Or, you know, as a plan group, we'll tell them and give them a task that we want done tomorrow, right? That disrupts their, their that, and we're micromanaging everything that happens, but give them some time, right? Like, hey. Specifically, my guidance is whatever we're going to get, unless we have higher, we really need to do something. And again, going back to protecting Marines, higher might want it. Sorry, sir. But higher might want it at a certain time. I'm going to be like, whatever. We're going to be late on that. But we're going to give them this time. That way they can put it in their plan and execute without that disruption or micromanagement. And, but you know, we can do the same thing, right? So as a, at an RS level and a being there, you know, at a MICRIC level, you know, from the RS level, I understand we all we all have our, our our understanding of what we need. Sometimes we need stuff right now, but if we can control that chaos, and you know, that kind of going to bleed into the one of the other things about friction, you know, stop causing them undue friction, you know, based off of our improper plan. Yeah, that's the 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 definition of of chaos, right? Is you know, war is friction, and war in itself is not complicated, but it's just this incremental friction that gets added that just makes it absolutely unbearable. And the same is holds true at an RS level. And all of those things by themselves are probably not too bad, but when they begin to accumulate and, and still a lot of time from the staff in CICs, something that I see and something I talk about, and we'll get your take on it, something that I deem as a micromanagement, others may not, is shipper validations, right? Where the staff and CICs or an RSS has to bring every shipper to the MEPS before they ship or to the RS so that they can validate the IST, so that they can validate the pre-ship and ask all these questions. 
in my mind, going back to the BLT acronym that you leveraged where you had the T meaning trust, there seems to be some breakdown in trust when you have to manage the RSS pool to that degree. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I yes, I, yes, sir, I do. I think I think if we put together a good plan and we execute that plan, that's probably something we don't need to do, right? Um, I can tell you now, we're not adding on to anything. I'm, I'm, I am a big in the, even our man. Again, we, we are not perfect in what we do, right? So uh, we've had our trials for sure, but you know, we're not we're not adding things on. If we just work it systematically, and you know, we do have district pool orders, et cetera, and thirty day pre ships and if we put that uh, confidence in those that we put in charge and we train them properly, um, it's not going to be perfect. But yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, we can overreach very, very easily. I mean, I remember the days of doing 30 days, seven days, 48 hour pre-ships, right? Like, and then calling everybody on Sunday. So, um, you know, having to do like beyond what they should do to go to boot camp, right? And, and the mid standards, um, before we would even definitely. So anything that we add to the system when it comes to that, uh, it, it becomes, it causes friction, you know, and that's, we'll talk about that friction here, I think in one of the other slides, but yes, I agree. Oh. Well, I just want to make sure I'm not casting any shade at Baltimore or any RS out there as an opso. I was a willful participant in allowing ship validation to go on. Right. But that's because at that time I didn't have the ability to articulate to my CO that that was a form of micromanagement and we're doing the job of the staff and so I see for them. And I guess going back to the original bullet or the first bullet we talked about of letting winners be winners, right? I understand the need in which a command would want to do that for select RSSs, those that have proven time and time again that we can't trust a pre-ship, we can't trust their word, that they're not capable of giving us an accurate site picture, you might have to go to that degree for them. But I'm confident that there are some staffing trustees in the scenario that we just described that do not need to bring all their shippers to the RS or you name the location for someone to validate. They are capable of sitting down, following the system as designed, doing a pre-ship, sending it to ops, and those kids show up to the maps and ship as they're supposed to. Yes. Yeah. No. And, and there are stations that can do that. You know, but again, that goes back to higher policies too, right? So if uh, all all we ever did was thirty day pre ship, and that was pretty much it, right? And, you know, but th- it depends on what policy, and you, and you know as well as I do, that can be dictated through districts and regions and stuff as well. Um, but I do think we you have to have certain control points, not to over micromanage, right? But there is some management that goes in there, and you know there are probably. And not to disagree with you, but there are probably certain recruiting stations that might have to implement this to try to clean it up so it doesn't happen. But there are some that do not. So I'm, I'm a component of that flexibility for sure, 100%. Just like you said, there are some that should and, and, and then some that shouldn't. Right. Words have meaning. I understand. I know that there are people out there, and I probably did this myself. We will make ship on Monday. Right. Something as simple as that means that you need five standbys and you better validate all your shippers because we're not shipping them on Tuesday. Right. So if we're going to get them all out on Monday, we may have to take those steps. Just interested in, in having that conversation to, uh, to advance the dialogue. So thank you for participating in that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't think we need to floor 10 people on Monday to go to boot camp. This is done five. Right. But that's that's me. <laughs> right. That That is that is excessive. All right. Let's get to the next bullet. Don't expect them to know. 
Yeah. So, so it's, uh, and this is really for, you know, this is for me alike, right. Um, and, and, and a lot of men group members as well, right. So when, when you go into a new station, for instance, and, or, you know, for in my, for my example recently, you know, when you have a whole new command, which is, that was unique to me. I mean, there was always a kind of a flow, you know, one guy leaves, got a little bit of time, but like when we, when we landed in Baltimore, we landed full up between the CO, XO, you know, SAR major. Um, and, uh, you know, soon after the, the option left, et cetera. So we had a, a pretty new complete team. I had basically two ARIs that were there for a little bit. Um, but it, it goes into don't, don't, don't expect them to know. So, it, it, leadership shouldn't be a guessing game. Granted, I, I understand we give them a mission letter, for instance, and that mission letter says you need to do X. But when you first get there, don't expect them to, to know, for instance, that you need KGs, right? And of course, this is a business of, you know, a couple months ago, how to get those KGs, right? Okay, cool. We need we need to contract KGs, you know, reservists. Um, but at that same time, like we prospect and how do we prospect and where do we prospect? And there's a whole lot. Yes, they'll tell you I'm on for a reservist, right? But how do you get that reservist? So when we get there and expect, like, especially these new recruiters, and it depends on when you fall in that time frame. If you go into a whole new command and what was happening before, you are expecting Marines to be at a certain level. Um, same thing with the command group. I'm jumping around a little bit, I know, but for instance, if you get a new ARI, like, okay, you should be able to do this. You didn't get here without being able to do these things. You know, and, and that was my thought process, at least at that command portion of it was, hey, you're an ARI, they had to come here to do this, to do this and that, you should know this. Well, my assumptions weren't, uh, were, were wrong. You know, I'm basing it off my own personal experiences or my own thoughts. Um, so going in there knowing that even though we give them a mission letter on what to do, you know, we have to define it for them, not to expect them. And we really can't play head games. But we have to, just like anything that we do when we go to SMEAC, we're really telling people, here's your mission, right? We got to tell them what we need, what we want, what we expect, straight, clear language. And in recruiting, it can be a little bit harder. I need you to find a reservist. Okay, cool. Well, how do you do that, right? So, yeah, it's clear to say that you need a reservist. But at the same time, you know, we got to make sure they know how to prospect for that and get to that level. And, and really never expect people to be mind readers. Um, and, and this was a thing for me, too. Like, I, I would expect you to be able to read me. When you're with a bunch of new people, that does not work. Right? If you're around each other for a little bit, specifically like a command group, you can start gelling. You already know. You know, the CO, the, you know, it's a relationship building adventure between the CO, SAR Major, RI, ARI, OPTO, um, you know, and even the A billets. So go into it knowing that you have to be clear and concise. Eventually, as you become more cohesive, it, you, there's things that won't need to be said. Uh, but take the extra time, right? Make sure your Marines are on the same page. You know, when people are told exactly what you want or what you really, when you tell them what you want and what you expect, and you have all those other things before that we talked about, they will be driven to get it for you. Right. So that's, you know, how you make that team successful, you know, again, for everybody, um, that entire team. So that, that's kind of what that's about, but yeah, it's just,
Okay. Hey, thanks. I, you know, just to unpack that a little bit or pull the thread on that. When you, when you say, tell them exactly what you want and what you expect, there's a distinct difference between that and then telling them how to do it. Correct. Correct. Yes, sir. Okay. So, I mean, obviously you want them to have the ability to maneuver and, and adapt or pivot or, or do what it is they do as small unit leaders to execute exactly what it is and what you expect. But the way they achieve that, provided it's legal, moral, and ethical, is up to their leadership, correct? Correct. Yeah, 100% on them. And I, I just use the, you know, the, the example of the KT thing for, for whatever reason, right? But it's, it's when, when we look at it in that aspect, it's like we can put that on a mission letter. And then when you jump into it, you'll assume they know how to accomplish that. It's the assumption beforehand. Right. And, and you know as well as I do, this is such an evolving, it's a revolving door, really. It's an evolving business always simply because the life cycle of recruiting not only changes with the market, but it changes with the personnel, which are constantly moving around. You know, so, you know, take us, for example, right? Uh-huh. But, you know, we have a whole group of new Marines, you know, so what we were doing before, you know, changes because I can't go into that station and assume we look at staff and I see we know when they're new. But what we need to look at is individual Marines as well, right? Like we have a bunch of new ones in there and we say do this, you know, that's concise. But again, it goes back to just don't assume, right, that they know it. it, it I know I bounce around between the two different things, but it kind of blends. It, it all makes sense to me. You know, and it goes back to knowing your Marines, which is what we talked about earlier. But then something I want to inject into this episode that we have talked about in a previous one was understanding as the command group, the peak performance model. Yes. When you look at your staffing, so I sees they are all staffing. So I sees and they were all hand selected by the commander, but they are not all at the same level on the peak performance model. And when you say this to them, whatever that this is, a third of them might fully understand exactly what you just said. The other third might be like, okay, I kind of get that. And the bottom third is lost. And that goes to this bullet. Don't expect them to know. But at the same time, you have to know your Marines and which one of them may need a little more detail or a little more coaching or a little more training to get them there. Absolutely. For sure. Yep. Okay. And this kind of goes into the next bullet, reduce confusion. Yeah. So AKA friction, right? So going back, tack, friction, strength, weakness, right? So we're tying all that together. Um, we can't be the cause of the friction. I, I continue to say it's hard. It's hard for me to, you know, we're, I'm, we're emotional human beings, whether you believe it or not, right? We fuel off of our emotions. And, um, you know, as leaders, we can't react before we're having all the information necessary to make those decisions, right? Because then we're just making assumptions. So we got to listen and really observe more than we speak. And this is super hard for a bunch of hardcore recruiters, right? They want to get out there and do nothing but speak, you know, but we talked about this even in the sales process, right? One of the most important things I think, and what I value the most with my experience, I think, as a recruiter and career recruiter was the, the training that I received on stopping and just listening to somebody, doing the observation and not making it all about me and then taking in what everybody's saying. 
So we got to be patient. You know, we can't succeed, you know, under anybody that is emotionally unstable, right? Which means, you know, you, you and I grew up in a different time, right? So there were, there were reasons for that. And I don't think there's complete fault, but, you know, when you come in and destroy everything, you know, that's, it's going to take me another hour to pick all my crap back up. Right. And I'm losing, I'm not being productive, et cetera. Um, and we got it. We have to expect miscommunication and misinformation. And, you know, that's, that's, it's tough. You know, uh, I get it, but it, it, it goes back to what you were talking about before. When it comes to extra things that we're adding, we are creating our own friction. We got to stop doing that. We have enough stuff to do. Our Marines have enough stuff to do. We got to stop creating, creating our own friction. Um, and that's, that's kind of where that ties in. So. Awesome. Well, the good news is I can, I can see you are burned from somebody that came into your RSS a long time ago and threw your working <laughs> file and your lists and, and pack cards and list scheduling right. cards went everywhere. So the good news is in McCris, it's all digital. So unless they're willing to throw a computer and then have to fill out the, the damage form, they're probably not going to be destroying no offices. So that's good. That's, that's plus. Yeah. That's good. You know, something I talk to command groups about when they come through the recruiting management course that speaks to reducing confusion, it goes back to the command group synergy and speaking with one voice. Rarely on recruiting is anybody literally shooting at you, right? You do not have to make decisions like right then. There's no need for any command group member to make a snap decision without consulting the other command group members. You know, save that for a sync meeting or save that for a command group action planning meeting and discuss that in detail to get different views and different perspectives before you make a decision. I've seen this firsthand where you go out and, and a command group member made this decision and then another one overturned that decision only to re, you know, re-implement that decision. That confuses the Marines and it will drive them absolutely bonkers. So back to having some tactical patience and understanding that rarely do we have to make a decision right now on anything and just being in lockstep as a command group so that the Marines know that it's one voice. Yeah. No. Well said. Yes, sir. All right. Let's see. Last bullet, last bullet. Appreciate your Marines. It kind of speaks for itself, but I'd like you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, it, it does speak for itself, right? So I, we can't take what we have for granted. Um, we really can't take their efforts, you know, for granted. Um, a lot of them, again, we're talking about the collective whole, you know, and their drive for success and what they're doing. Um, they may not appreciate some of the stuff now, but they will later, right? I mean, they will later. Um, so we got to appreciate them for, you know, what they contributed. You know, appreciation goes really a long way, not just – not, not just, you know, everywhere else, but I do specifically think, like, on recruiting duty, what they're going through as young Marines, um, you know, and each other, as community group members, and, you know, and, and really 8412s, you know, appreciate what we're doing. It goes a long way here. It, I think it goes farther. So we don't want them just to be successful, but we want them to really, at the end of the day, uh, when they are done, to feel accomplished when they are leaving. And I think the majority of them do, you know, they, at first they look at, Hey, let's, let's get to the end of this. Yeah. My tour is done. But when they're leaving, 
and when you're shaking the hands and you're having conversations with those guys, you know, um, you know, the ones that really were invested in it, um, there's a little bit of sorrow too. I mean, they're leaving, but they, they have some sorrow that they're excited to go somewhere else for sure. Right. They're, they're like pop smoke, break contact. I am dropping this pack and I'm out of here. Um, but there's a sincerity to them um, and they feel accomplished. And when they go away with that, it's not just going to make them better, you know, individuals, uh, well, Marines and individuals in the fleet. You know? And um, so winning teams, that's really what's developed under our leadership. Right. That uh, that when we're able to deal with those personalities with Eastern Marines, we manage each of them individually and maximize every one of their strengths and, and learn how to fill in. You know, for their fill in for those weaknesses and train them to it, um, they will leave accomplished. Yeah, I, I truth be told, it, it's sad to me sometimes when I know it sounds like it's all sap, you know, sappy and stuff. But when a marine just like bolting out and he really don't care, I you know, I personally take that like, all right, I missed it. He doesn't feel accomplished. Um, but when when we do appreciate them, and again, we're talk about the majority of them and when they leave or they still hit you up on, it's like our recruiters, right? You know, we talked about, you know, I had an engagement with my, you know, I only knew him for a couple of weeks. I, you know, I saw him in the fleet multiple times. When you have, when you feel accomplished and they, they, they hit you up and they're leaving, that's, you know, that's what it is. And I think that's a testament to, do they feel like we really, again, appreciated them? You know, and I, it sounds sappy, but, me there's a difference between the marine that's leaving it's just really burning tires and the marine that you could tell like all right i came you know i conquered and, and i left right so that's it sir. you know the, the the phrase that comes to mind is this is a thankless job right you hear that a lot of times and not just on recruiting but in other places but well it's just a thankless job but it doesn't have to be right it, it doesn't take much to show your Marines that you appreciate them and that you value their efforts and the work that they've done. And we understand that 36 months for some will go by and it will not be as challenging as others. But each Marine is kind of in their own unique fight. And if you know those Marines and you know those challenges, it will bring greater meaning to the to your ability to show appreciation to them. So that's good. I'm glad that, that we're kind of closing at least the talk in terms of building a winning team with that. But with that, you know, we've been going for about an hour now talking through your idea of building a winning team. But what I'd like to ask now is specifically, what role do you think the recruiting instructor has in building a winning team? Everything. Right. So you're it, it is the I, I mean, granted, you have your CEO, but truthfully, like I, I truly believe this It is the most important role that we can serve, you know, in our capacity as 8412 um, in a recruiting station and, and in the recruiting environment. So it is challenging. It is demanding. Um, but it is really integral to everything that happens at a recruiting station. So you name it, from personnel to, you know, working with your A-billets, developing a command group to working with the Marines and putting together packages to make sure your enlistments are going through. I mean, so you, you have your hands in absolutely 
everything because not only are we the duty experts, you know, but we are, you know, the, a lot, we're the senior leaders at that point in time. I mean, we are in this MOS, you know, and, and beyond, and this is not to, to discredit anybody, but we have a lot of, you know, very senior guys that are in that MOS is that we're also developing and working with our majors that just got out there that are brand new, right? So we, we have an important role to fill across the gambit and role and then managing personalities and everything else. Um, that's, it, it is absolutely everything. It's the reason why this is, you know, we talk, I'm on my way out to do the last job I wanted to do. Hard to kind of do and retire, you know, but I've been fortunate enough with a good command, um, you know, to kind of to fit that in, but it's ground level stuff. And I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, you've done a, a phenomenal job. And yes, to close out a career at that tactical level, rowing as hard as you have is absolutely commendable. But what you described to me really sounds like a battalion ops chief by another name that we call the recruiting instructor. You know, you got to have your, your 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 hands in everything. You know, you're helping shape shape policy with the CO. You're helping shape personnel moves, working with the sergeant major. You're helping drive operations, working with ops. You're developing training plans based off of all of that. And then it's kind of your job to get out there and help shape all of those actions. You're helping the marketing side of the house. You're helping the logistics. You're the go-to for a lot of things. Yes, there's a CO. They have a role. They're there to command. You've got the sergeant major who's there to kind of work hand-in-hand with you. And when all of that works in synchronization, you end up with the RS utopia where everything is working like a winning team. Right. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. What what things in your career do you think help you help set you up for success for this final billet? Uh, you know, it's, you know, again, cliche, but everything, right? So it's, it's, it's definitely like the, the experiences that, that I had, the leadership that I had, the mentoring that I had, good and bad. Um, you know, so it, it was, and again, you, you, you don't have to have as much free time, you know, you know, as I did to be successful. I there's a lot of RIs that you know been doing this job truthfully at this level a lot longer than I have. I respect that a hundred percent. But it's a good mixture. But it all boils down to going back to those basics, right? We we all got that at some point in time, you know, whether it was four or fourteen, you know, we all had these Marine Corps basic skill sets that were given to us that we uh, latched on to. Um, our ethos, the lead, really leadership. When you pick up the manual and start taking a look at stuff, you know, we're talking about tax riches. You know, I, I'll go back to that probably for the rest of my life because I think you can correlate that in your personal and professional life forever. Um, but it was those that were around me, and then and, and really the basics of you know the Marine Corps to, to train and show me that stuff. So. All right. Well, thank you for that. What do you wish you had known prior to? stepping into the role of recruiting instructor this time? Yeah. So I, I had a, um, you know, I had a prequel in Buffalo, so I kind of had an idea. Um, but, you know, I, I, as I go around and I, I guess if I can part, you know, any wisdom on anybody that's about ready to take that role as an RI um, and or preparing for that role as an RI is you got to be a Marine leader too. So get out of lane. There are, there, there are no lanes. 
as a recruiter instructor, everything is your lane. So it's, it, it is personnel. It is, man. I mean, and, and that's the big thing, you know, that, you know, I kind of saw in Buffalo, you know, a little bit, and I always had my hands going back and forth to ops and stuff. But then, you know, I got, I was in McRick and I saw from afar and was learning as I went. And when we went to Baltimore, you know, with a whole new command, you know, we all have our part, but really as a command group, you know, everything is kind of your lane as an RI to help mentor, mature, you know, manage what's happening. You do not want to be the guy who gets called and you don't have the answer to it, you know, or at least you're not involved in that process somewhere, somewhere, some, somehow, you know? So if, if there's anything, you know, to it, it, it's that you are involved in everything at recruiting station because although it takes the team to get it there, you're the duty expert to help everybody get there. You know, you bring up an interesting point that you have to be involved in everything. And we're just kind of continuing to unpack some of the same conversation we've already had and being in every lane. And now I will ask you, how do you bridge that gap with other command group members? Because they're all coming out super eager and motivated to handle what's in their lane. You know, you've got a, a selected CEO that's there motivated, full of, you know, vim and vigor to get it done. You got a sergeant major that fits that same model. You got an XO, you got an OPSO. How do you bridge the gap that, hey, I'm not trying to do your job. I'm not trying to like take up space in your lane. I want to help bridge all of these lanes together. How do you, how do you bridge that gap? Well, you got to, uh, <laughs> that's a good one, you know, but you have to, you got to be involved with everybody in building a relationship. Let's go back to BLT. That's it. BLT. Believe, like, and trust you. And I don't care who you are. When you first walk into a room, you don't automatically, whether it's a Marine or not, assume that this is going to be your guy. That's just reality. Right. And for me, it was, you know, leadership by example. I, I know it sounds cliche, but I'm going back into it. We know what the hell we're doing, you know, but we do, we know we're, we know what we're doing. And we need to we need to go in there and then execute in that fashion. We've got to put the work in. And in between there, you know, manage different personalities the best you can. You're not always going to win. I mean, it, it, it's this is also not for everybody from the recruiter to the command level. That's just a fact. You know, you're not always going to win. So if we go in there as recruiter instructors based off of what we know and our experience, we lead by example, we put the work in, and we continue to manage, then you're going to get that BLT. Once you get that BLT, that's it. You're in there. And that's that's not just what, you know, with recruiting units. That's, I think, with every unit. But that's just my thoughts, sir. No, that's great. And I wish I had done this more earlier in my career. And even at, at this point, I still struggle with building relationships. And I think it was General Mattis who put it that he's accomplished more with a pack of cigarettes and a can of beer than he's done sometimes with bullets and bombs. And, and there's a lot of value in that. You know, you don't always have to go in and blow things up. You can develop relationships. And it's something that I talk to command groups that come through RMC about all the time. Yes, there's going to be the work side of this. But if that's the only time you interact with each other, you may not be, you know, working at your full potential. You know, go out back and have a cigar together. Go out and eat dinner together. It doesn't have to just be at lunchtime during a workday. Have somebody over to your house. Get to know them. 
Because when you know them and you know their family and you know their history, you don't want to let them down because now it's on a personal level and spot on. You know, you got to have those relationships. Are we going to be best friends in golf every weekend? Maybe not, but we will have a better relationship that then translates to better work performance for the Marines below us. So that's awesome. Awesome. All right. As we begin to bring this into final approach to land this thing, I have two more questions as you're about to retire in terms of the future of the 8412 career recruiting MOS. Are there any new billets that you think would create opportunities for 12 that you think maybe we're missing? Or do you think there's some that, that maybe we shouldn't be filling with 8412s? You, you know, I, I, I thought about this, you know, and I think it's, I think right now, you know, we're, we're spot on with what we're doing. I mean, it, it's smart. I understand that there's probably some, um, you know, argument to be had about the OST positions and 8412, you know, given my background, you know, especially specifically with Mick Rick, I, of course I'd see value um, that is there. I do think there may be some flex that might be there um, based off of needs. You know, if we're banned up 100%, cool, you know, then we can put them there. But we, we definitely need, you know, most of our players on the field if that's the way it is. And that's the only struggle, the only thing that I would say, you know, that, again, I, I specifically, I really do see value there. Um, but I also see the uh, at that level when we have a lot of recruiting stations that don't have 12 from the field on the east side, um, that, that there's a struggle with that right there. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say they shouldn't be there, if that makes sense. So overall, I, I think we, we, we got the players on the field to where they need to be um, and in those positions for sure. Okay. Yeah, you, you, you centered around the OSTs and really what I would describe as the tactical level at the RS. I'm really looking at like some of the more upward progressing type billets. You know, we've got two eighty four twelves, one at one at each of the SOIs. You've got a twelve at Marsoc. You've got a twelve at the Naval Academy. You know, are there some other places that we could potentially put eighty four twelves that would help us be better prepared for twenty thirty? Like, should we have an eighty four twelve at Google doing an intern with them? Should we have an eighty four twelve at Amazon learning logistics to the degree that they are? You know, are there going is there going to be a time where we're moving people around on automated equipment? That's kind of what I was looking for when I'm like, have you put any thought to like what recruiting in twenty thirty looks like and how we could prepare an eighty four twelve to recruit in that environment? No, you know, I I think. You know, when we go, when we're looking at future ops, I definitely would have to be open-minded to it for sure. Um, I, I tend to stay on the side of, uh, you know, and again, I want them all here, right? I want them in the field, right, doing their thing. Um, but I also understand that, you know, externally, the impact is stuff that they can provide. You know, so if we had those opportunities, I definitely say for sure, you know, uh, it, it should be entertained because there's always going to be value that comes to those external agencies that can bring, you know, what we're looking for. Um, you know, but right now I like what we got, you know, I like what we got, but again, you're talking to guys going to retire here soon, you know, and, um, and, uh, and I'm only looking at that window sh- so short, but I, I, I'll say that no matter where we put an 8412, whatever capacity or environment, they are not only going to thrive, but they will be able to add to the fight. So the metric of that, you know, how much, how less, that's left up to, you know, the future. But take one of us and put us anywhere, 
we're going to get it done and we're going to bring it back to the table. All right. Force multipliers, impact players. I love it. Long ball hitters. Yes, sir. All right. Final, final question I have, and I'll let you go. I know you've got some things to get to. Do you have any book or podcast recommendations for the listeners? Well, I'll, I'll say yours, right? So <laughs> I've already said that. It's, about that in the it's, it's ours. It, ours, you know, so uh, there, there's, there is a lot of value to it. Uh, like I said, I, I, I really do like them, um, you know, but to, to go off of this and you either love them or you don't. Right. Um, but, you know, Jocko Willings, you know, uh, discipline equals freedom. Right. It's not a hard read. Uh, I'm down with that. That's that's a quick and easy read. And then, you know, we had the pledge. Well, we had the pleasure at the R.I. conference to meet uh, Chad. Um, and in his book, The Unfair Advantage. What's his name? Chad Robichaux? Robichaux, yeah. Chad Robichaux. Um, so I, I read it. It was a good book, The Unfair Advantage Victory uh, in the Midst of Battle. Um, so it goes through a lot. And, you know, the last plug with that, too, and I've done a lot of research into this, and, um, you know, the Muddy Oaks Foundation. So they, they, which is Chad's foundation and if you don't know he's a marine recon guy ufc fighter went through his own challenges and put that book out we all got it at that at the ri conference uh, we got to meet and talk to him um super inspirational right uh, but he does deal with a lot of ptsd um suicides they do have that mighty oak foundation um with their mission to kind of bring bring that number down so i'd be amiss if i didn't, didn't talk about that a little bit specifically you know us talking to him and then having him come to the ri conference and going through that stuff with us too. So that would be it on the recruiting side of it. You know, we've already said again, you know, Blunt, Deb, Deb, Blunt with fanatical recruiting and, and, uh, um, a virtual recruiting, which were two really good books to kind of help. We started moving in that direction before we kind of got that book and talked to him in virtual world. Um, again, I'm, I'm that guy to be on for everything, you know, so who knows, we could be shut back down again and have to get back in that format a little bit more hooking and jabbing, but if you notice, the corporate world's really moving a lot in that direction as well, um, which means, you know, as, you know, as we progress in what we're doing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose sight of that 100% just yet. Yeah, all good stuff. I have all of those books. I would highly recommend them to the listeners as well. I really appreciate the recommendations. Thanks for coming on to the show. This has been very inspirational for me in talking to you about leadership and how that's applied in a recruiting environment or any environment for that matter. So again, Master Gunny, thanks for the time and thanks for coming on the show. Hey, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. 